God is good, yes? And, and, and I say that, obviously, because it's true, but I also say that because um, several months ago, I, I, I planned out this series, looked at the um, you know, book of Samuel and decided that we were going to take a journey through it. That's where God would have us go and so forth. Um, and I just kind of plugged in the sermons to the dates. I didn't really think a lot. I don't generally think a lot about holidays um, beforehand. I think about them when they happen, obviously, and I want to celebrate and recognize them when they happen. But I don't really think long-term about them. That's maybe a fault of mine, but that's who I am. And um, so, I, so I plotted out, I placed in the uh, the sermons and... As I was preparing for the sermon this week, I looked at what we'd be looking at, and I was like, wow, that's a God thing, that God had this particular sermon to follow on Mother's Day. Our sermon title today is that there's no task too small. The next couple Sundays we're going to be looking at, today and next Sunday we're going to be looking at David and his rise to power, his um, the actions it took after his anointing. We looked at that last week. And next week we're going to be looking at the reality that no job is too big. And how God can empower, how God can strengthen, how God is through those very difficult situations, those things that are so formidable, so overwhelming, so difficult for us on many levels. But today we're looking at how there's no job too small. And, and the reason that strikes me as providential in terms of it falling on Mother's Day is that when I think back on my own mother, the life she lived, and I look at my wife and her role as a mother, the things that stick out to me are not necessarily the big, momentous actions. Things that resonate with me today are the little things. The, the little extra steps when preparing a meal or planning a party or carrying out some other activity. The little things that, to be honest, if I were doing them, they probably wouldn't have gotten done. You know, if I'm throwing a party here, here's what you need for the party, let's do it. You know, no, we're going we to have the right color or we're going to have the right sign or we're going to have the right this or the right that. Those, those, those little extra steps that are so, in my opinion, expressive of what a mom is like. At least that's been my experience with my own, with my own mother and with my wife. It's, she raised our kids. And so I want to use the passage today to, to honor moms for the little things that they do. To, just to acknowledge that and to recognize that. And to say that those little things do matter. They do add up. They do make a difference. But I also want to challenge the rest of us to remember and to realize that there is really no job that's too small when it comes to honoring God and serving God. There's a story told of a man who was vacationing on a beach, and it was one of those seasons, one of those times when um, 
a lot of starfish were washed up on the shore. And as he was walking around on the beach, he saw this little boy who was out there, and this little boy was running from starfish to starfish, picking him up and throwing him back in the ocean, realizing that left out there on the beach, pretty soon those starfish would die from the heat and so forth, being outside the water. The man watched the boy for quite a while and finally went up to him and he said, Son, I, I really admire your giving heart, your you know, your compassion on these starfish is it's just admirable, but I mean, do you really think it's making a difference? I mean, just think of all the beaches and all the starfish and all that that, that you're not gonna be able to get to. Just think of that. Do you really think you're making a difference? And as the little boy reached down and picked up a starfish, he threw one and he says, it made a difference to that one. And I think, you know, when we think of our life as Christians, we think of the things we do or don't do. Sometimes we think, man, there are so many lost people or there are so many hurting people or there are so many people who really need help. Who am I? to try and tackle such a big task. And I think our message today, I think the passage today reflects the fact that we're not always able to get to everybody. And it's not the big task that we need to be concerned about. It's the little things. The things that others might overlook. The things that others might see as insignificant things that might seem as, in some ways, beneath us. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. And if you remember, as I, as I mentioned last week, David has been, to, been anointed king of Israel. Samuel has anointed him with oil. And we saw there in, at the, in verse 13, that the presence, in the presence of his brothers, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. He's been anointed by God. He's been recognized by God. He's been empowered by God to carry out this task. He is the rightful king of Israel at this point. Well, let's see what happens. It says, now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And the evil spirit sent him, sent from the Lord, began to torment him. So Saul's servant said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God has been sent to torment you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre and you'll feel better. And Saul commanded his servants, Find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, I have, a, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome. The Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wine skin, one young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. 
When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. And whenever the Spirit of, from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Now, before we get into the text and David's reality here and David's response here, there is something we really need to deal with because it, it the way it reads is, is somewhat troubling, is somewhat um, disconcerting, if we're going to be honest. And that's this evil spirit from God. When you hear that sentence, there's probably at least a little bit of a, of a catch in your spirit. Wait a minute. God sending an evil spirit. Does that match up with my view of God? Does that match up with my understanding of evil and where it comes from and all those other things? It's it's a little bit off-putting, if we're going to be honest. At least it is for me. So, so how do we understand that? What do we understand that's going on? Well, again, the first thing you need to keep in mind, and this is very important, is the setting. Israel, prior to, and I mentioned this before, prior to the exile, prior to when the Babylonians came in and carried them off for a while, and, and then God redeemed them and brought them back to the land. Prior to that time, which is about 500 years after this, Israel was a very polytheistic society, the culture. The, the individuals within their culture were given to the belief that there were multiple gods and that multiple gods were responsible for different things. If you had two opposing forces in reality, that that was because you had two gods fighting over that reality. Anybody who's ever read you know, the Greek mythologies knows this is, this is how polytheism worked. They explained fall and winter and spring and summer and rain and Drought and all those other things by what? The, the battles of the gods. That's how they viewed reality. Okay. And so in that context, when God is revealing who he is and who he's revealing, you know, how he works and how he operates, he, he wants to, number one, he wants to do it in a way that's truthful. He doesn't want to deceive people. But he also wants to do it in a way that kind of corrects that particular misunderstanding. He doesn't want to say something that would lead people to believe in another God. He wants to be very careful there. So, for instance, at the end of 2 Samuel, where it talks about David taking a census, in Samuel it says, God caused him to take that census. But in Chronicles, which is written after the exile, when Israel has come back and they've learned to be monotheistic, writing about the same account, the same event, the same realities, there it says Satan caused David to take the census. Why the difference? Because the pre-exilic writer of Samuel wants to make sure that we're not honoring other gods. And if he were to say to that audience, to that congregation, to that people who believed in multiple gods, if he said Satan had caused Saul here, for instance, or David to take the census or whatever, then they would have heard what? Satan is a god. They would have elevated 
Satan to this op- opposing force of God that's equal to him and, and that God sometimes struggle with. And, and God doesn't want that kind of misunderstanding to be present, doesn't want the people to understand that. And so everything ultimately from a biblical standpoint, especially in the pre-exilic era, is explicitly, explicitly stated to be from God. Now that's true. Ultimately, God as the sovereign one, the one who's in control, everything ultimately goes back to him. So it's not a misrepresentation of who God is. It's not lying to us. It's not just being with the early people and then it's got to be changed or fixed later. It's true. Ultimately, even to this day, as Christians, we believe everything falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. If it doesn't, he's not God. We don't have a dualistic religion. We don't believe we believe in Satan, but we don't believe he's on equal grounds with God. We don't believe he's on the same level with God. He himself falls under God's sovereignty. You see that in Job. Or what? He has to ask permission before he does what he does to do. Okay. So in this passage, the first thing we need to realize when it's talking about how God gave this and God gave that. That yes, there's truth in that, God's sovereignty. God is the one who allowed it. God who's, is the one who permits it. But ultimately, on this side of the exile, on this side of the cross and so forth, we recognize there's secondary causations, including mental issues, including demonic forces and so forth. We recognize that. Okay. The second thing is the translation of the word evil. The word behind evil in Hebrew has multiple meanings. It can mean evil as in morally repugnant, as in something that is opposed to God. But it can also simply mean something along the lines of harmful or disastrous or something like that, troubling. It has a wide semantic range. So we could also legitimately read the sentence to mean that God sent on Saul or allowed on Saul. I'm going to make the allowance again for the secondary causation. A spirit or a reality that troubled him, bothered him, discombobulated him, if you want to use that word, okay, that made things difficult for him. And the reason that God did this was explained in, in our previous series where we looked at the three steps to Saul's fall. The reason this happened was because Saul had chosen to go this route. It wasn't just like Saul's living the perfect life and he's loving God and all that. God's like, you know what? I'm going to torment that guy. Okay? That's not what's going on here. This is That's not the reality. Saul had chosen this path. And he chose this path by refusing to take responsibility for his sin by refusing to acknowledge God's authority in his life, by refusing to be obedient. And so if you remember back when we looked in 13, 14, and 15, you, you know, Samuel says what? He says, you, you're so far gone, Saul. You're, you're so far separated from God that I'm not going to visit you anymore. As a prophet, I'm no longer coming to you. And it says at that point, the Spirit of God departed Saul. That empowering force, that encouraging force, departs Saul, and instead, 
he begins to suffer this torment. So this is a situation of Saul's own making as well. You have that, that tension that the Bible often puts forward. God's sovereignty, our free will, both contribute to the circumstances we find ourselves in. So, so understand that that's what's behind Saul's torment. That's what's behind the difficulties that Saul is facing here and what he's dealing with here. And so with, with that, however successfully explained uh, as it was, let's take a look at, at David's role here. Because, again, I want, you, I want to remind you that David is the anointed, rightful king of Israel. And how easy would it have been, at least for me, if I'm in that circumstance to say, Saul's suffering? Well, all right. Let's keep it going, and before long, you know what? He's just going to fall apart, and I can step right in. You know, this is my chance to manipulate. This is my chance to, to mold. This is my chance to move things. That's the temptation we face. That's the flesh speaking. That's, that's our selfish motives taking hold there. But that's not what we see in David. We see some realities here that, that I want to advocate for us as we look at our own lives and the things that we're called on to do. And the first of these is simply don't be too proud to do something that is beneath you. Don't let pride, don't let your, your, your understanding of yourself get in the way of doing something that God has laid on your heart. The world may see it as beneath you. The, the world may see it as an inglorious job, a thankless job. But God doesn't see it that way. God calls on us in, in our everyday life, in our everyday experience, to, to do those things that are less than we think we deserve. Again, as I reflect on, on moms, you know, I, I think of some of those things that moms do. From wiping runny noses to cleaning up other messes that kids make. And again, I, I, I think of I think of my own mom, I think of my wife. My wife she's a CPA. Not an easy task to accomplish, having passed the exam, worked in one of the big five and all that other stuff that CPAs often drive for. And yet how many times have I seen her cleaning up the worst of messes, down on her hands and knees scrubbing or, you know, cleaning baseboards. It's a baseboard anyway. She's interested in those things. She cleans those things. She gets involved in those things. And I know that's the reality of, of moms all over the place. They do these little things, these sometimes nasty things for the love of their children because it's the right thing to do, things that are in many ways beneath them. And as believers, we're called to have that same mentality 
when, when Christ calls us, as we've said before, as the scriptures repeatedly say, he, what, he calls us to die. Take up your cross and follow me. That's an invitation to, to die to yourself to follow him. And we need to have a, a servant's heart. I think of Christ on the night that he did the Lord's Supper. Recorded for us in the Gospel of John. That he got up from the table, took off his cloak, wrapped it around his waist, and proceeded to go around the table to his disciples, the ones who were dependent upon him, to do what? To wash their feet. That's a servant's heart. A sort of heart we're supposed to have. Many of you have heard of uh, the famous pastor D.L. Moody. He was, by all accounts, a amazing preacher, a person who loved the Lord, a person who was driven by the commitment to make disciples, and because of that, he was holding a conference once, and a bunch of European pastors came to one of his conferences. And all of these pastors and coming from Europe, they, they had different customs. They had different ways of doing things. And, and one of the customs that they had grown to, to, to follow was at night in their dorms as they were training or as they were working someplace and so forth. It was customary in those days for them to leave their shoes right outside the door to be cleaned and polished for the next day. It was something that the house servants there in Europe would do. It was a regular occurrence. It was something that, that they were very familiar with, but guess what? It was not a custom in America. Imagine that. But they didn't really think about that, and so... Moody, walking through the dormitory there one night during the thing, he he was surprised to see all the shoes right outside the door. And he didn't want to um, embarrass these brothers, these visiting ministers. And he, in fact, talked to some of his other ministerial students, some American students who were there about the situation and circumstance, but his comments and his expressions were met with silence. Uh, the American students just didn't get what he was trying to get at, didn't, weren't really interested in, in helping or anything like that. And so as the story goes, Moody returned to the dorm, gathered up the shoes, and alone in his room, polished every one of those pairs of shoes. All those men had traveled all the way from Europe just to learn from him, to work with him, to experience him. He was the reason. He was the famous one, so to speak, that they were there to learn from, that they were there to grow from in their knowledge of him. And yet, here he was cleaning their shoes 
And it, if it were not for the unexpected arrival of a friend in the midst of that work, we would never know it happened. One of his friends happened to show up as he was doing this work. He walked in on him. And they're the ones who have told the story. Moody understood that as believers, there is nothing really ultimately that's beneath us. If we're dead to ourselves, there's no task that's too small. Second truth we see is David has become this court musician, even though he's technically the king, is we see that we don't need to be afraid to lose out on something bigger by doing something little right now. Looking at the situation, here is this anointed king. We're going to make you court musician. Now again, the, the, the text highlights that that what that Saul did this, he called on this because what? The other servants in the palace noticed the need and they said, get somebody like us who can play the music, who can do this to, to come and play for you. I imagine when you're thinking about the career path of becoming a king, if there is such a thing, that court musician's not on that list. I mean, you can see warrior, you can see soldier, you can see, you know, all sorts of positions in the kingdom that might lead to being the king one day, but I'm going to be the entertainer. The equivalent from the Middle Ages to be the court jester. I'm going to be the court jester so that one day I can be king. And yet David didn't. Take that into consideration. He honors Saul. His father honors Saul. His father at this point knows David's supposed to be king. And yet David says, Jesse says what? Here, let's send these, this food, let's send these goods, so forth, and you go and you serve him. Why? Because David knew his future was in God's hands. If God said... I'm going to be king, then guess what? I'm going to be king. And it doesn't matter what I do now, I'm not going to lose out on that opportunity because I know God has this and God has a purpose and God has a plan. And it's so easy to, to get wrapped up in how things look. I've often struggled with that. There was one time I could think of where, where I didn't, where I got it right. When I was at Southwestern Seminary, part of what I did to, um, to help pay my way and support the family and so forth, one of the many jobs I had was I was a painter. I was on a paint crew for the seminary. And we would go out. Most of what we did was go out and do make readies on the dorms and the apartments and so forth that students lived in. When they moved out, we'd go in, we'd repaint everything, get it all ready for the next people to move in so it looked nice and that sort of thing. We also did some other stuff around the school, but that was our primary job. And I graduated with 
my PhD in May of 2000. And it would be several months before I actually had a good paying job from that PhD. And I still remember the looks on everybody's faces when I walked in to the shop that first Monday after receiving my degree, and everybody's like, what are you still doing here? You have your degree now. The boss even thought it was funny. He made me a name tag. I still have it in my office at the school. It says, Dr. Tim Pierce, professional painter. I wasn't always that successful at doing what needed to be done, but that was a moment that I got right. And it's important for us to see that, that me doing that paint job, what didn't risk my job as a, as a professor later on, even though I was working with guys that just a couple months later I was standing in front of instructing, teaching, holding them accountable to their learning. The same guys I had painted beside and in some cases had instructed me and bossed me around I was now holding them accountable. My decision to do that didn't change what God would ultimately do with me later on. And we need to see that we're not in risk of losing anything. If God has a plan for you, if God has a purpose for you, trust that plan and that purpose. Trust what he's revealed to you. Trust what he said to you. Trust what he's called you to. And on the way, do what you can to serve, to honor. Third, don't be ashamed of doing something you love. As you're doing something God called you to. David, by all accounts, he mentions it in some of his psalms. It's mentioned in the narratives as well. David loved to sing. He loved it. It was his thing. He was obviously talented in it. We read some of the music he composed. He was gifted in it. Otherwise, he's not doing it for the king. He loved to do it. And so here he had this opportunity. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to sing. I'm going to use my gift. And in my years of ministry for myself and for dealing with others, what I've discovered too often is that sometimes people have the mindset that if something is a spiritual gift or something is a service to the Lord, that it also then has to be a burden in order for it to be spiritual. We have, it has to be a burden to us. If it's not hard, then are we really serving God or are we serving ourselves? We, we sometimes struggle with that reality. How can I enjoy something and still it be a spiritual gift or a sacrifice? Well, the reason you're able to do that is because of the goodness of God. That God gifts us, whether we're talking spiritual gifts or, or talents, He gifts us with things that we can enjoy. He doesn't intend our service to Him to be overburdensome. What did Jesus say? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
He says, what? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think those are probably the most ignored words that Jesus spoke in Christianity today. We have come to view Christianity as this burden, as this weight that we have to carry around. And we've lost a sense of joy and excitement, fulfillment that Christ provides. Psalm 23, one of our favorite, favorite psalms. But even there, we tend to focus on what? You know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. And we forget all about the, my cup overflows part of it that God's providing us. It's been truly said, you know, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Follow the God you love. Do what he's called you to and you'll never work a day in your life as well. It'll be a joy. And it's okay to enjoy it. It's okay to like it. And we find encouragement there. And then finally, never underestimate how God might use you to help someone else. Even in the little things. Again, as, as I think about my own ministry and the growth that I've been able to experience, and I'm still experiencing, because I still have a lot of growing to do. And as I've, I've tried to minister to people over the years, a lot of times my model for that ministry was my mom's service, my wife's service, the strength they de demonstrated, the love they demonstrated. David is just playing a song. Just playing a song. God used that to relieve, to help Saul, to bring peace for Saul in those moments. To grant Saul an opportunity, even still, to acknowledge God and worship him. An opportunity Saul didn't take, but an opportunity that was given nonetheless. And those opportunities... Sometimes they come on a regular basis, just everyday experiences, things that just pop up. That if your eyes are open and your heart is open to what God's doing, you can make a real difference. James Hewitt, pastor, tells of a, a neighbor he had who was trying to, to put a TV antenna on his roof, but was having a Terrible time doing it. Just couldn't get it together. One of his, uh, his other friends decided to give him a hand. And he went over and he took with him his best tools. And, and soon they had the antenna up. And, and the neighbor said, wow, that's impressive. You got a lot of really cool tools. What do you make with them? And the man looked at him and said, friends mostly. 
things we have can be used to make a difference in life. Sometimes God does something extraordinary with those things. Sometimes God does something unexpected with those things. In 1850, there was a young man, 16 years old. His name was Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was on his way to an appointment there in London when uh, a blizzard forced him to take shelter in a primitive Methodist chapel. He couldn't get to where he was going, so he just went in. And he sat down, and the regular preacher was unable to make it because of the storm, and so there was this church member. Never preached before, never did anything before, but he said, you know what, I'm just going to say a few words just so we can have church. Didn't prepare anything. Probably wasn't capable of preparing anything. And he got up and he said, he read Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There were only a few people in that room. There was, in some ways, no reason to even get up and say a word, but he felt compelled. Just a little something. Just a word from God's scriptures. Just a, a simple sentence. And he said, look to Jesus and find life. And in that moment, Charles Spurgeon said, God spoke to my heart. And I surrendered my life to him. He was saved that night. And the world was gifted one of the greatest preachers that's ever lived. All because one everyday member got up and read one sentence from Scripture and said one line about looking to Jesus. It's the little things that God can use if we're simply obedient. We don't see things as being beneath us. We don't see things as risking future opportunities. And we simply do what we love. And we trust God to do something big with our little. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your love. I thank you that even the little things that we do can make a big difference when they're placed in your hands. God, I pray today that if there's someone who's never experienced the, the overflowing peace and joy and contentment that you provide, who's still struggling with a, a life of sin, still struggling with a life separated from you, God, I pray that you would draw them and they would respond in faith. They would look to you. 
and experience the salvation, the deliverance, the joy, the peace, the rest that you alone can provide. I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters as well. Lord, help us to truly develop servant hearts that are interested and willing to do the little things that you call us to. We praise you. We thank you. We give you our lives. In Christ's name. Amen.